When it comes to church participation, times are changing in our culture. The signs are all over the place. While the sanctuary is nice and full here at Knox, the same is not true in many other churches. Buildings that once looked like ours are not churches at all anymore. They are theaters or clubs or abandoned altogether. Most congregations in the Presbytery of Cincinnati have less than 100 members. And the Presbyterian Church USA has lost over 40% of its members in the last several decades. We are not alone. Some version of this story is the same for Methodists and Lutherans and all of the other mainline denominations. Catholics are struggling for new members also. And it may surprise you to know that growth has also leveled off in those big non-denominational megachurches. Sure, there are exceptions, just like it feels like Knox may be an exception. But overall, people are not leaving churches of one kind to go to another kind of church. Mostly, they are just leaving. In fact, the only religious demographic that is growing in the United States is the nuns. That's not people who are joining convents. It is people who, when asked about their religious affiliation, check the box that says none. Knox is not immune to these changes. Barely a week goes by that I don't hear at least one of you lamenting the fact that your adult child does not have a church home of their own and perhaps is not looking for one. If the person in your life for whom that is true is not your child, it is probably a cousin or a spouse. We all have people in our families and plenty of friends who have lost interest in church. This morning I'm going to try to offer some context to help you understand and interpret these shifts in church and in culture as we look at an important Bible story together. For starters, the news is not all bad. Here's one thing that has changed in our culture. Church is no longer a requirement for reasons that never should have been important in the first place. It used to be the case that church membership was important if you wanted to be successful in business, if you wanted to get into the right kinds of civic organizations, or simply to avoid judgment from your friends and your neighbors. Most of that stuff doesn't matter anymore. I actually prefer it that way. You see, when all of those other reasons were in play, many folks sitting in the pews on Sundays were not here for the best of reasons and didn't want to be here. Most of you, on the other hand, are here not because of social pressure or coercion, but by choice. And that's great. It means this place has amazing possibilities for every one of you and for all of us together.
another important piece of context. The declines we are seeing in church are not unique to religious organizations. They are not unique to religious organizations. We are living in a time of declining trust and interest in all kinds of institutions. People don't trust government the way that they used to. They don't trust media. They don't trust corporate America or higher education. People are not joining organizations the way they used to, social clubs, civic organizations. All kinds of institutions are on the decline. In many ways, churches are just caught up in this shift. And what that means is that the problem is not necessarily religion or belief. There is plenty of evidence that people continue to be quite interested in the questions of faith. They are just choosing to explore those questions in different ways than they once did. And that means that it is perhaps not as bad as we feared. God is not dead. Perhaps God is doing a new thing. This brings up today's scripture lesson. For our time is not the first time religion has been in decline. Far from it. Nor is it the first time that God has done a new thing. This is the third sermon in a series of three on the Old Testament books of Samuel and Kings. These books cover a period of roughly 500 years of history for the people of Israel. Two weeks ago, at the beginning of the series, I talked about how it all started. Roughly a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, before his lifetime, at the beginning of the books of Samuel, Israel is a nomadic group of people who have finally settled into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Saul is anointed as their first king, followed by David and then Solomon. This is a time of immense change in Israel. Up to this point, Israel was a group of tribal wanderers following around the Ark of the Covenant in a tent. Now they have a capital city in Jerusalem, a palace, and Solomon builds the temple, God's dwelling place on earth. And all of religious life now becomes centered around that temple and the rituals that take place there. It is a huge change. This is the new way of understanding religion for the people of Israel, and it works pretty well for a while. But the kings come and go, and many of them corrupt and neglect God's law, and about 500 years later, the kingdom goes into a period of steep decline. As Anne read to us in this morning's first lesson from the end of the book of Kings, the Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem, and they sack the city and destroy God's temple. And Israel is on the cusp of another big change. 
For more than two generations, the Israelites will live in a period of exile in Babylon. This is a time of immeasurable pain and tragedy for the people of Israel. But God is doing a new thing. The second reading for this morning is set in that historical time when the exile comes to an end and the Israelites get to go back home to Jerusalem. Comfort, comfort you, my people, the reading says. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, for God is going somewhere. God is doing a new thing. 500 years after that, change will happen again. Jesus is born, and after his lifetime, the church comes along. Most of the New Testament is focused on the difficulty of these changes, from the different perspectives of the Gospel writers to all of the letters that round out the New Testament. It's a time of immense change. 500 years after that, beginning in the 400s, the church becomes an official religion. The doctrines of the church are established at the Council of Chalcedon, and with the fall of Rome, the great monasteries of the Middle Ages will soon be born. In 1051, 500 years after that, it happens again with the great schism that split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. 500 years later, beginning around 1517, the church changes again with the Protestant Reformation. The late Episcopal Bishop, Mark Dyer, popularized this idea many scholars are now studying, that the church has a sort of rummage sale every 500 years. Every 500 years in history, there has been a watershed change in the Judeo-Christian world. The church does not go away. God does not go away. The church changes. Religion changes. God is doing a new thing. We seem to be at it again. Beginning a couple of generations ago, back in the 1960s, the institutional church, as we know, started to change. It started to go into this period of decline and transformation. The change continues. God is doing a new thing. Of course, what everyone wants to know is, what is that new thing? What will the church look like? And though there are signs of life and growth and experimentation all around us, there is not yet one thing I can describe to you. One thing people are saying now with great confidence, having been at this for a couple of generations, is that vitality in the church is probably not about technique. The music we choose to play, the time of our service, whether I wear a robe or a suit or a ripped pair of jeans, doesn't seem to matter. But there are signs of consistency 
where churches are dying or growing. Folks say a lot of the same things about why they are leaving the institutional church or why they are choosing not to go in the first place. And those who are joining new kinds of church communities also say many of the same things. These qualities can be described. And I'm going to share one way of understanding the changes. I owe the following illustration to Diana Butler Bass. She's an author who knows as much about this stuff as anyone I can find. She's been studying and writing about it for years. In order to make the point, I'm going to read to you a poem, and I want you to read along with me. I want you to follow along as I read it. I'm going to invite you, if you are sitting at the center aisle, to look underneath your pew cushion. You reach underneath your pew cushion, you will find there a half sheet of paper with a poem on it. You will see in just a moment, there should be some, yeah, right right on the, the aisle there and back there. Pass these along, there are five of them in each row, so you may want to share with your neighbor. And I hid these because you will see in a moment that were I to give you this when you walked into church this morning absent any context, it is rather troubling. But I will be giving you some context. This poem is not a theological statement. It doesn't say anything about God. It's simply an illustration of a way of thinking. Listen as I read it and follow along. I am part of a lost generation, and I refuse to believe I can change the world. I believe this may be a shock, but happiness comes from within is a lie, and money will make me happy. So in 30 years, I will tell my children they are not the most important thing in my life. My employer will know that I have my priorities straight because work is more important than family. I tell you this, once upon a time families stayed together, but this will not be true in my era. This is a quick-fix society. Experts tell me 30 years from now I will be celebrating the 10th anniversary of my divorce. I do not concede that I will live in the country of my own making. In the future, environmental destruction will be the norm. No longer can it be said that my peers and I care about this earth. It will be evident that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. It is foolish to presume that there is hope. And all of this will come true unless we choose to reverse it. Now keep that paper in your hand. Don't put it down yet. Because if you go to the website this comes from, the, uh, the YouTube video listed at the bottom of the page, the thing that happens next is that the direction of that last line is followed. We reverse it. So now I'm going to read the same thing to you, starting at the bottom of the page. There is hope. It is foolish to presume that my generation is apathetic and lethargic. 
it will be evident that my peers and I care about this earth. No longer can it be said that environmental destruction will be the norm. In the future, I will live in the country of my own making. I do not concede that 30 years from now I will be celebrating the 10th anniversary of my divorce. Experts tell me this is a quick-fix society, but this will not be true in my era. Families stayed together once upon a time. I tell you this, family is more important than work. I have my priorities straight because my employer will know that they are not the most important thing in my life. So in 30 years, I will tell my children, money will make me happy is a lie. And happiness comes from within. I realize this may be a shock, but I can change the world. And I refuse to believe I am part of a lost generation. Now friends, again, this is not a theological statement. There's no mention of God in the whole thing. The reason I read it to you is to illustrate a point about the three words at the top of the page. Believing, behaving, and belonging. Most of us came to know church according to the same pattern. We joined a church by making a statement of beliefs. Everyone claimed to know those things and to believe them, and so we did too. Maybe our parents brought us to church, and those statements of belief were made in baptism or in confirmation. Those of us who stuck around and showed up regularly studied the beliefs and found that we were starting to change our behaviors. We gave generously. We helped people in need. We engaged in Bible study. We took our kids to Sunday school because that's what the beliefs said to do. And over time, this led to a sense of belonging because we were among other people who were doing the same things. Believing, behaving, belonging. It's a pattern that works quite well in a context where trust in institutions is high, such that people are confident believing what the institution tells you. Now consider these three words in the same way you heard the poem in reverse. Belonging, behaving, believing. From what we can tell, this is where the church is going. Mistrusting what we see and hear from institutions and absent the social pressure to be in church in the first place, Diana Butler Bass says most people are not starting with belief anymore. But the thing that has not changed and that is perhaps even more significant than it used to be is that people are yearning for community for a sense of belonging. And when they find it, it is powerful. This human desire has not gone away. 
These days when people find authentic community and a real sense of belonging someplace, then they begin to adopt the behaviors of that community. They share in a particular kind of life together. And over time, this belonging and behaving leads people to believe in something. In the God who has been at the core of that community all along, the God we know and have known all along in Jesus Christ. It's not that the beliefs are changing, they are just being approached in a different way. And here's the really convicting part for those of us who thought it was supposed to start with belief. Jesus always started with belonging. Jesus' ministry with people begins with open invitations. Come and follow me and I will make you fish for people. His invitations go out to tax collectors and sinners, the sick and the oppressed, the people who did not belong anywhere else but to whom Jesus said, you belong with me. Jesus' disciples, the ones who chose to belong with him, changed their behaviors. They left behind old ways of living. They fed and healed people. They lived together in community. And only much later did Jesus ask if they believed in him, and because they had belonged and behaved together, they said yes. The question for us is not what's going to happen to our church. Instead, the question is something more like, how can Knox keep participating in this way of being that Jesus has been showing us all along? God is doing a new thing, yes. But God has done new things before. And even as many of the changes we see in church are new and at times frightening, I believe that we will be upheld by the same God who has always said, Comfort. Comfort my people. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Amen.